Well, good morning, and thank you for that welcome. It is so good to finally be at the story. Um, I have known about y'all for some time. I've known your pastors, and I have heard really amazing things about what God is doing here. It's so clearly what God is doing. It's just really wonderful to see. So um, when Eric and Giovanna asked if I would come this weekend, I was thrilled on several counts, uh, thrilled because I am a native Houstonian living in exile in Kentucky. Kentucky's a wonderful place, but as she mentioned, not a lot of authentic Mexican food. And so my goal is in 48 hours here to eat as many meals of Mexican food as possible, and I think I will meet my goal. Um, I was also excited to come and see what God is doing here, and then I was thrilled because today happens to be my grandmother's 99th birthday, and she lives here in Houston. I'm able to get to come and see her and spend some time with her. So God is so good, and I'm thrilled to be with you uh, this week. Well, they also mentioned that you are in the middle of a series called A Skeptic's Guide to the Bible, and I thought that was a really intriguing title, and I began to think about uh, times of skepticism in my own life when I needed God to show up and prove to me again his power and his strength and his word and when he's done it again and again. And I thought about especially a time in my life when I was working in my very first job. Some of you remember the first time somebody actually gave you a paycheck to do something. That was the era of my life. And instead of just um, preaching on it, I thought, you know, this place is called The Story, right? I thought maybe we would just spend time and I would tell you the story of that time. So when I was 22 years old, I graduated from college, and I was hired by a little church in rural Texas to be their youth minister. Now, if you're doing the math, 22 was exactly four years older than the oldest teenagers in the group. And that meant that I was, I didn't have a lot of authority, and I didn't have any experience, and I was just jumping into this thing to see maybe I could do it. Maybe I could try to work with this group of teenagers and teach them about God. And I learned the most, you know how you, you get experience as you do things wrong, and then you learn from your experience. That's why it's called experience. So I did so many things wrong in that first job. And I'm not really sure why they hired me. Maybe I interviewed well and looked older or something. But um, one of the things was I, I knew that I had really gained a lot of growth from going on mission trips when I was a teenager. So I thought, oh, we'll go on a mission trip. We'll, we'll find some place that we can serve. And uh, in that year, there was an area in the Texas Hill Country that experienced some flooding. And I was like, that's it. We're going to go do flood relief. So we drove up to the Hill Country, maybe 30 youth and parents. And I didn't call ahead. And they had already cleaned it all up. So there we were, three days in a church with no showers, finding our own mission trip. And it turned out God totally blessed us. We found some really wonderful ways to serve and things to do. Another time I thought, church lock-in. We'll stay all night at the church. This will be really fun. So I had about 25 teenagers sign up, but I forgot to ask any parents to come and chaperone. So it was like me and some other college-aged people and 25 kids. It's a miracle we didn't break the church and that they let us come back the next week. And then another thing was uh, I was asked if I would do a Bible study with the senior high youth. I thought, this is great. I mean, how else are we going to grow in our faith in God unless we read his word and let it teach us and instruct us and grow us? This is what we'll do. Uh, only I didn't really know all the tricks of the trade with teenagers and studying the Bible. Like maybe get some curriculum that has, I don't know, games and coloring sheets and activities. I thought we would just read the Bible, that that's what we would do. And I didn't even think to pick a part of the Bible. I just said, well, if we're going to have a Bible study, let's just read the whole thing. 
So that's what we did. We started at the beginning in Genesis, and over the course of one school year, this group of teenagers, we read all the way through the Bible together. And somehow, through my own ignorance and lack of even asking anybody else with experience, God blessed that. And I would say that we were a group of skeptics gathered looking at Scripture but I really think we, we are all skeptics in some ways when we come to Scripture. We're entering into a different world, a world that doesn't look like our own or seem like our own. We, we ask questions of it. We're asking God to teach us what it means. Um, some of us, like I was that year, I, I, it wasn't that I was a skeptic about the content of the Bible. I just didn't know if it would work. And honestly, I had more doubts not in God's Word, but more doubts in myself. I didn't know if God's word would work through me in ministering to this group of teenagers. But we went for it anyway, and God showed up. Um, at that time, I convinced seven high school age kids to spend every Tuesday night with me reading all the way through the Bible. And I'm not sure that's exactly accurate. I don't think I convinced them, and most of them weren't really there to read the Bible. Uh, this uh, little church was in a community with a very mixed population. There were some farms and some teenagers that lived on farms. Uh, there was a large trailer park that was like one long gravel road with, um, you know, pickup trucks up on blocks and rusty sheds out next to them. And then there was this brand new gated community with a golf course and mansions going up every week. And that's the mix of community that I had, all these kids from different backgrounds. There was uh, Daniel, the pastor's kid, and Ronnie, who grew up in a farm, and they were both at Bible study because they were there to impress the same girl. Her name was Allison, and whenever she signed up for one of our activities, attendance spiked. And by attendance, I mean boys. And she was just as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. It was wonderful. There was one girl, Audrey, who I was pretty sure was there on Tuesday nights because things were so bad at home. Uh, anytime we had an evening activity, she showed up, and I knew that there was a lot of conflict in her house, and I was pretty sure she was there to escape that conflict. Then there was Lizzie, who didn't want to be there at all. She had moved beyond skepticism and said that she did not believe in God at all anymore and made that a very public declaration to her parents, who then declared to her, you're still going to Bible study on Tuesday nights, and then mentioned to me that they felt that I was the last hope for their daughter to believe in God. No pressure. Then there was Justin. And I know you're not really supposed to have favorites in ministry, but I'll confess that Justin was mine. Justin was the quietest kid in the group. He lived out in that trailer park I mentioned, the long gravel road where the houses, the trailers got more dilapidated the longer you went, and he lived at the very end of that gravel road. Uh, he needed a ride on Tuesday nights, and so I would drive out to pick him up. And while he was the quietest kid in the group, during our car trips together, when I would pick him up and take him home on Tuesday nights, he would talk my ear off in the car. He would tell me about um, some good things about the football team and about how he was hopefully going to get a scholarship and maybe be the first in his family to attend college. He would tell me about some hard things, um, about how his mom was working three or four jobs and about his stepdad's drinking. And every Tuesday night that I drove to get him, when I would pull up in their driveway, I would just pray that he would be out standing on the porch waiting for me. 
Because if he wasn't, I would have to park the car and get out of my car and walk up the steps to the screen door and ring the doorbell. And when I did, a pack of a dozen small dogs would appear out of nowhere behind the house. And they would nip at my ankles and bark loudly and chase me all the way up the steps where I approached to ring the doorbell. And I'm still not sure why anybody needs a doorbell if they have a pack of a dozen dogs to announce their visitors' arrivals. So Justin had been through a lot at home, and uh, one night on the way to Bible study in the car, I noticed that his legs were covered in insect bites that were scratched and scabbed over. And when I asked about it, he admitted that things had been really rough in the house lately. His stepdad had been drinking, and he had been sleeping in the shed behind the house. It's okay, he said. It's no air conditioned, but it's kind of like having my own place. I used my flashlight to do my Bible study and my homework. The only thing was the shed is also where the 12 dogs slept at night, and they had a pretty pretty bad case of the fleas. Uh, We had some amazing conversations on the way back to the church and when I would drop him off, but when we pulled into the church parking lot, he would clam up, and he really didn't talk during Bible study unless someone talked to him. He was the quietest and kind of my favorite. And I think the reason he was probably my favorite is that I felt like my little 22-year-old self doing things just out of ignorance, I felt like maybe I could make a difference with this kid. You know, other of the teenagers in the group, they seemed like they had parents looking out for them or teachers that were kind of following their progress, but this one seemed all alone. And I thought just maybe if I invested in him, I could make a difference. Maybe I could really do this in ministry. Well, Justin was the quietest kid in the group. Lee more than made up for it. Lee was a seventh grader, 13 years old, with bright red hair, a face covered in freckles, and a squeaky high voice that got squeakier and squeakier when he got mad. Now, I mentioned this was a group for high school students, and Lee was in junior high. And when I announced the signups for people that wanted to read through the entire Bible every Tuesday night for an entire school year, I didn't think I'd have any junior high kids that wanted to show up for something like that. But Lee did. He asked me the first time we announced it if he could sign up. No, Lee, I said, this is for high schoolers. You need to wait a couple of years. And I foolishly thought that when you told a 13-year-old no, that was the end of the conversation. He asked again the next week and the next week until finally I said, Lee, stop asking me. You've got to wait till high school to read the Bible. Well, he did stop asking, but a couple of weeks later, he said, Miss Jessica, I have a question for you. What is it? I said, he said, well, I've been reading the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, and it has lots of cool monsters and dragons and stuff, and there's lots of blood and gore, and so it's really awesome, but there's this one thing I can't figure out. What is it? I said, well, he said that beast. There's a beast in Revelation, and I want to know, how does he wear 10 crowns when he only has seven heads? Lee, I said, how do you know so much about the beast in Revelation? He said, I've been reading it as bedtime reading every night before I go to sleep, and I've probably read it four or five times, but I just can't figure that beast out. And then he pulled a notebook out of his backpack, and he showed me drawing after drawing of all of the blood and gore and monsters and beasts in Revelation. He had illustrated the whole book, and that was it. Any kid that's going to read Revelation as light bedtime reading 
gets to show up to Bible study. Lee was about half the size of most of the high school boys, and it was his absolute joy to annoy them. That's what he tried to do every week. And it turned out that at 13 years old, he was more dedicated to doing his homework and reading the Bible during the week than any other kid at that table. So the first week, we gathered around the table in this church library, all ready to start reading the Bible together the first Tuesday night. And we were really a gathering of skeptics. I'd say that where I mentioned, I think all of us kind of come to the Bible with some skepticism, but, you know, teenagers just don't wear the masks that adults do. They're willing to ask the hard questions. They're willing to look dumb doing it. And so they were better Bible scholars than any adult that I've ever worked with in a Bible study. They were skeptical about the content of the Bible, but I was sort of a skeptic of another kind. It wasn't the Bible I doubted. It was really myself. I mean, I wondered, what am I doing here? Really, I had kind of an imposter syndrome going on. What if they realize they've hired someone so inexperienced that I don't know what I'm doing? I mean, I believe the Bible was true. I just didn't know if it would work if I taught it. So that first Tuesday night, we gathered there around the table in the church library. Those of us who were eager to be there, those of us who were reluctant to be there, those of us whose parents were making us be there, and those who were there to impress a girl. And we began at the beginning. We opened our Bibles to page one, and we read out loud together from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, but a spirit of God hovered over the waters. Now, I had no idea that very first night just how much every person around that table needed to hear just the first two verses of the Bible. It turned out that the world was dark, it was chaotic, and that God wasn't afraid of that at all. That where there was darkness and chaos, God came in and created beautiful things, new creations. I was just getting to know this group of teenagers, but it turned out that every single one of them had quite a bit of darkness in their lives. Some of them at home, some at school, some in their doubts and dreams about the future. Every single one of us was wrestling with some darkness, and we desperately needed to hear that God could move into darkness and chaos and make something beautiful of it. And I needed to hear that myself. We all did. We learned from the very beginning that even though God made a beautiful space, it was the people that came in and messed things up. I mean, within three chapters, it didn't take them very long. And we kind of held our breaths and wondered, what will God do to these people? What will the punishment be when they mess everything up, when Adam and Eve and the fall happen in chapter 3? What we noticed is that God just moved in again, took the chaos that they had created, the darkness they had fallen into, and began to shape and light and form new creation out of chaos. God's answer was to go towards them, not to run away from them. And we began to see that over and over. It seemed like the Old Testament was full of stories of people running away, falling away, disobeying God. Sometimes it seemed like these teenagers really got it. And then sometimes they just kind of goofed off. Sometimes they were there and they didn't do their reading during the week. Sometimes they just passed each other notes under the table when it looked like I wasn't looking. That's what we did before text messages, if you remember. We passed each other paper notes under the table. And somewhere in the middle of the Old Testament, things started to drag a little bit. 
that's not even true because really it's the beginning of the Old Testament where things start to drag. If you've ever tried to read the Bible cover to cover, Genesis, Exodus, you're going strong with all the stories. Then Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy kind of slow you up a little bit. And Tuesday nights were rough sometimes. Sometimes only two of them showed up, and I would think, what are we doing here anyway? And then we would have the most amazing conversation, just me and one or two kids. Then one night, on a Tuesday night, we were somewhere in the middle of the book of Judges, and we were letting Lee read a little bit. He was complaining every week, by the way, that we weren't to Revelation yet, and where were all the beasts? But we were letting Lee read aloud, and everybody was just kind of listening, when all of a sudden, he interrupted Wait a minute, he said. Wait a minute, I can't do his high, squeaky voice. Didn't we just read this? What, Lee? What are you talking about? This, we just read it. It was on the last page. We're reading through Judges, and it says, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So when they do, everything gets messed up, and they're desperate, and God has to come in. They cry out to him. God comes in and rescues them, and things get better when God shows up. And then they're, they're grateful for that for a while until they forget And then you turn the page, and it has the same line. The people, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then things go bad, and then people cry out to God, and then he steps in and rescues them. And then they're grateful until the people, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And actually, Lee was getting faster and squeakier and higher every time that he said that line. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we were kind of entertained by him. He was like the group mascot, so we were all like chuckling at what he was doing until he said this one line that I'll never forget. The people, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't there some other story? And I don't know if you've ever been in a room full of people when everyone realizes the same thing at the same time. There was no more laughing. Everything got really quiet. We all just looked at each other around the table because we realized that a 13-year-old had just taught the class. Isn't there some other story? We all knew in that moment the answer to his question. There is no other story. It was a story we had been reading over and over again, not just in Judges, but in Scripture. It was the story we were all experiencing in our own lives, that when we follow God, when we're true to him, things go pretty well. But when we do what's evil in God's sight because we forget to be faithful, things go terribly. We cry out to him. God steps in and rescues. Every person in that room was experiencing some point in that same cycle And we were learning together to trust God, to make those periods of running away shorter and the periods of staying with him longer, and that God had the power to enable us to do that. It was a great laugh that we had at Lee's line, but there was no other story, and we were starting to get it. And I watched that play out in every life around that table that year, mine included. Well, we didn't get to the New Testament until February, I mean, the Old Testament's a pretty long read, in case you haven't noticed. Jesus was born around Valentine's Day, and it seemed like the wrong holiday for him to show up on, only it wasn't, because it was really wonderful to read the Christmas story and Jesus' birth without all the trappings of Christmas and presents and parties going on around us. It was like we took it seriously for the first time, just for what it was without all the holiday mess. And we began to read it as kind of a love letter. 
like a valentine that God had sent to us about his love, sending his own son to earth. That was a pretty amazing time in the group, I'll say, when we hit the the New Testament. And at some point, right around that time, Lizzie, the one who declared that she didn't believe in God anymore, she may have mentioned to me out in the hall somewhere when everybody else wasn't listening that maybe she did believe after all, that maybe she was willing to follow Jesus again. And I began to think that maybe I was supposed to be teaching the Bible to people after all. Maybe God was calling me not just to this group, but to a lifetime of something. I I didn't know what it was yet. Maybe I was actually good at this ministry thing. And then one afternoon, I drove down that long gravel road to pick up Justin, and he wasn't waiting on the porch. So I got out of my car, and I walked up the steps, and I surrounded by the pack of little dogs, rang the doorbell. And his mom came to the screen door. She didn't open it. She just talked to me through the door. Justin's not here, she said. He's not coming. Justin's in jail. She said it just like that. So matter-of-factly, it was like he was out for a walk or something. Justin's in jail. Justin was a great follower. He followed the guys at football practice. He followed friends to church and youth group. But he hadn't quite figured out how not to follow the wrong crowd. He had spent the weekend spending the night at a friend's house uh, when this group of guys decided that what would go best with their teenage shenanigans would be some beer. So they hopped on a couple of four-wheelers. They drove across a pasture, across a big field, out in the country to an old convenience store that was closed for the night. They took a brick, broke a window, crawled in and grabbed a couple of cases of beer and left drove back across the pasture to the kid's house and drank their beer. It was the perfect crime, except for the security cameras, and except for the fact that their four-wheelers made tracks in the mud as they went back to the house, and all the cops had to do when the alarm went off and they showed up was follow the tracks all the way back and arrest them that night. Justin was 17, so they were going to try him as an adult. All the other boys had parents who showed up at the jail, bailed them out, and took them home. Except Justin. He stayed there. And I found myself doing something I didn't even know was part of youth ministry. Driving to the county jail and visiting a teenager. Learning to pick up a phone and talk to a familiar face through glass. Trying to offer him some word of help or hope. We brought him a Bible and he read it. He read it like his life depended on it, and I'm pretty sure it did. He met a chaplain in prison who invited him to give his life to Christ, and he did. And he began to share with me through the glass that God had turned his life around, that these visits meant everything to him, that he was pretty sure that God was calling him to share the message of Jesus Christ with other people. The pastor and I drove out the day that he was released. His family didn't come, so they released him into our custody. And we drove back to town, and we asked if he wanted to go home. And he said no. It was Tuesday. He wanted to go to Bible study. I knew that some of the parents were already saying, news travels fast, some of the parents were already saying that this kid shouldn't be allowed to come to youth group because he might be a bad influence on their good kids. That night, we were reading the book of Matthew, 
And Jesus was telling a story, a parable. Lizzie read it out loud for us. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go and look for the one that wanders off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. Most of them were looking down at their Bibles at that point, and I happened to look up across the table, and Justin was looking at me. And he mouthed, thank you. He knew. It seemed like his life was totally turned around. I have never seen such a 180 in any human before or since. He began telling his peers about what had happened to him in jail. He began sharing that he had given his life to Christ. He even began thinking about being called to be a preacher someday. On Youth Sunday, we put him in the pulpit and he shared his testimony and people applauded. And then he, he pulled out a bouquet of flowers from that pulpit and he called me up and he handed them to me in front of everybody and he said, it's all because of her. She's the one who helped me through this. And then everybody applauded again, and then we sang Amazing Grace, and then we went to the fellowship hall and ate fried chicken. (laughs) And I thought, if this is ministry, I think I can do this. I saved a kid, the one that I wanted to make a difference with. I did it. This kid's life is different, and I think it's because of me. I'm ready to take on the world. And within two weeks, Justin was back in jail. Same group of friends, same hangout, went to his probationary meeting the next day and failed his drug test. He was a great follower, this kid, a wonderful one. He just didn't really know how not to follow the wrong group of people. And that week, the week that went from testimony and flowers in the pulpit to a kid back in jail just like that. Um, That week I spiraled into what I think is the deepest depression that I've known before or since. I didn't wanna go to work, I didn't wanna go to church, I didn't wanna talk to anybody about it, I had failed. The one thing, the one kid that needed me, I had failed. So I went home Uh, instead of to work, and I climbed into bed, and I made a little cave out of the covers, and I had myself a little pity party about how hard ministry was for me, how terrible I felt, how hard this job was. And eventually, I don't know if it took hours or days, I can't really remember, eventually I stopped talking and started listening, and God began to speak to me. I know that I heard him. And I don't know if you know this, but God's voice isn't always super comforting. (laughs) So what I heard God say was this. If you want the credit, you're going to have to take the blame too. Let them put you on a pedestal, and it's going to hurt pretty badly when you fall off. If you're in this for what people say about you, if you're in it for the praise, then you have to accept the criticism. Uh... God can be brutally honest sometimes, honestly, and it was the truth. And I confessed there in that little cave of pity 
What I think I already know, I just hadn't told myself yet, and it was this, that there was nothing in me that could save anyone, and that it had to come from God himself, that it was going to be my weakness that would make me depend on Jesus, not my strength that was going to help anybody, that it was God's power that was going to work in people's lives, not anything magical that I could do for them. And that I was going to have to depend on God every day for all of it. (laughs) And 20 years later into ministry, I am still practicing that lesson. So I did go back to church. And I did go back to Bible study. And I was totally different. Something in me had changed. Some realization um, made me approach the whole thing differently because God was in charge now. And he got the credit as well as the blame And we got to the book of Revelation about April, right at the end of the year. We let Lee throw a party. He brought out all his drawings and took them out of his notebook, and we taped them up around the church library. Don't tell anybody we put tape on those walls. And uh, so we were surrounded by beasts and gore, and then we let Lee read aloud, and we brought cupcakes. And that night, um, all of them were there except Justin. He didn't come back, not to youth group, not that year. And for years, I wondered, I wondered what had happened. Um, And a couple of years ago, through the miracle of social media, he got in touch with me on Facebook, shared some pictures of his kids, showed me a picture of his wife, told me about his job, told me he was going to church. And then we talked a little bit about how deeply we had both changed that year where we spent almost every Tuesday night together. That Tuesday night, the last one, we were reading from the book of Revelation, and we knew better than to have anybody read but Lee. We gave him the readings that night, and he was reading in his high, squeaky voice, that little seventh grader. This kid is six foot three today, by the way, taller than any of the high school boys. And that night, in characteristic Lee fashion, he got mad at the Bible, even at the very end. He had only read the exciting parts, right, about the beasts and the wars and the battles. But suddenly, he came to this part in Revelation I don't think he had paid attention to before. John of Patmos, the the one who wrote down the book and shared his revelation from God with all of us, John had just received this visit from an angelic messenger. An angel is standing before him, giving him this incredible message. And in this moment where Lee was reading, John falls down on his face and worships the angel. And the angel basically says something like this, don't do that. Don't worship me. I am a fellow messenger along with you. I am not one to be worshipped. Don't worship anyone but God. Don't worship me. And Lee got so mad. He said, what is he doing? Why would he worship anyone but Jesus? We just read this whole book about how people mess up when they worship anything but Jesus. Don't do it, John. Don't worship the messenger. Don't worship anyone but Jesus. Only Jesus. And that high, squeaky little voice, once again, became our teacher. Because that was basically the whole year in a nutshell. Only Jesus. That's all you need. Only worship Jesus. Don't don't worship anyone else. Not the beasts. 
Not the bad guys, not the monsters, not the good guys, not the angels, not the messenger, not even when the messenger is you. Don't worship anyone but Jesus. That was the lesson of our year. It took us a lot of months of Tuesday nights to get there, but I think we finally got it. Only Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, thank you that you have not left us alone. Thank you that you didn't just create us and leave us spinning out into the universe to figure it out on our own. But Lord, you came in person. Jesus, you showed up. Your feet touched earth. Your hands touched people. And you promised us that you would never leave us or forsake us. We want to thank you for your word because we don't know what to do. But you've given us everything we need to follow you in it. God, give us a hunger, give us a thirst. Everyone in this room, everyone at the sound of my voice, I pray that you would once again give them a hunger for scripture so that we would long to open it before any app, any newspaper, any email, that we would be so dependent on you day to day, Lord, that we couldn't go to bed at night until we had read and steeped ourselves in your story. And then remind us again, Lord, that we are not just little bits of stories spinning out on our own, but that you have called us to be part of your story. Come and rescue us when we turn away. Come and remind us of your presence. Come and tell us again that you're real. We love you, Jesus. Only you. Amen.